Today, we conclude the sermon series, Remaking the World, and our scripture lesson comes from the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet looks around and sees that the world is crumbling, and then he offers this image of what God will do. Here are these words of hope from Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning at verse 31. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, although I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, and I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. May God bless this reading to our understanding. The late poet Mary Oliver begins one of her poems like this. Another morning, and I wake up with a thirst for the goodness I do not have. In so many ways, I hear people around me saying this very thing about our own lives. Another morning, and I wake up with a thirst for the goodness I do not have. The longing for a goodness that we do not have, it has many roots or many tentacles. There is this pandemic that won't seem to go away. It seems like it's over and then it comes rushing back in upon us. We are tired of it. We are weary from it. We are trying to get on with life while staying safe and protecting those people whom we dearly love. And then there is this war in Ukraine raging on. And I wonder if some of us are beginning to become numb to the pictures of bombed out cities. Are we seeing ahead of us a long battle between freedom and totalitarianism? And then there's the economy with the Dow dropping and inflation soaring. And we know that some in our human family cannot afford any longer to put the basic food on the table. And there is the intensity of our political polarization, which seems to be increasing both nationally and internationally, with each group claiming their own version of fact and fiction. Well, these are not just headlines. These are not just distant realities happening to someone else. These have impact upon our own daily lives. A friend of mine is the director of a local preschool. She tells me she's exhausted and she's burned out. Why? Because she cannot keep enough staff to provide the care for the infants and the toddlers in her preschool. And she asks me, how am I going to find folks willing to do the most precious of all jobs for the lowest wages with no benefits when they can go somewhere else and make more? A college student graduates with honors, but he has no professional experience to put on his resume because the last two and a half years of the pandemic eliminated all of his internship opportunities. 
A refugee family who has moved here to Kansas City from Afghanistan is still living in a hotel because of the soaring housing costs, making it cost prohibitive for them to move in to permanent housing. A grandmother I know, she is tender, sweet, devoted to her church, a loving mother, and she has recently been told that her cancer has progressed She's been placed on hospice care, and she has two beautiful, loving daughters, successful women, caring, kind people, but her two daughters will not come and visit her at the same time. Why? Because they have opposite views on racism in the United States of America. Another morning, and I wake up with a thirst for the goodness I do not have. Well, today's scripture lesson from Jeremiah was written in a similar climate to the one in which you and I are now living. The people Jeremiah speaks to have one foot in the old world and one foot in the new world. Only their ordeal is not a three-year-old pandemic or war that has been going for three months. Their crisis has been happening now for 40 years, practically a generation, a generation of people struggling with how to hold on to hope when it looks like God might be absent. The name of the crisis that the people in Jeremiah's time were facing is called exile. Now, here is a good way to imagine what the exile felt like. Imagine if the war in Ukraine had already lasted 40 years, and then someone in Ukraine issued an edict that the people could come home and rebuild their country. Imagine the people trickling millions of them back into Ukraine, trying to rebuild their homes, their houses of worship, their town hall, their family business. But some of the people coming back don't even remember what life was like in their homeland because they were born while their families were living as refugees in Poland. The prophet Jeremiah writes to a people who are bewildered by their circumstances. Walter Brueggemann is a great scholar of the Old Testament and has written a lot about this period of history called the exile, a period about 500 years before the time of Jesus, when life seemed to be on the brink of disaster for this generation of people. Walter Brueggemann says that when we think about the exile, we should imagine that people are experiencing wholesale grief. They are just bewildered. And what he says about God is that in the scriptures, God appears to be exhausted. (laughs) I think that's so funny to picture an exhausted God, but it makes sense. Brueggemann says that God is exhausted because the people are so recalcitrant. The people of God assume maybe God has given up on us, and they blame themselves. Maybe we failed The relationship that we had formed with God for generations, it feels broken. They wake up every morning with a thirst for a goodness they do not have, and it is into this dire situation that the prophet speaks a message from God. Jeremiah says, God speaks to us and says, I will make a new covenant with my people. I will put my law within them, and I will write it 
on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. I think it must be one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Bible. God will write God's love on their hearts. But but did God? Can it be true? What would this look like? My friend and colleague, Reverend Tom R., has written a new book called Joy, Even on Our Worst Days. In the book, Tom tells about a friend of his named Joe who lived in Jacksonville, Florida. Joe, he said, was a small and quiet man, but a a, a strong man. You see, Joe had spent a portion of his life doing his best to destroy his life with alcohol. And so Joe looked about 15 years older than he actually was. But Joe had dried out, and he took a job working for this halfway house that the church supported, and 24 men lived in the halfway house while they tried to rebuild their broken lives. Joe was patient as he taught the men the skills that they would need to salvage their lives. Joe Joe didn't just do the work. Joe loved the men. But as so often is true with addiction, sometimes the men failed. He didn't have a 100% success rate there at the halfway house. And so one day, Tom was talking to Joe, and he said, how do you keep doing this difficult and heartbreaking work? And Joe said, Tom, you have to trust that there is a better man buried down in each one of these men, and it will require persistent love to bring that better man to life. In the book of Jeremiah, God says the same to all of us. God knows that there is a better person buried down in each one of us, and God will love us persistently in order to bring that person to life. God will write God's love upon our hearts. Jeremiah speaks to us not just of a distant God, of a God who will one day come, but Jeremiah speaks to us of an intimate God. God says to the whole house of Israel, I took you by the hand, and then you broke the covenant, though I was your husband. Do you hear the intimacy in taking you by the hand and being your husband? God loves them persistently. God loves them intimately. And then God forms a new covenant with them, one that they will not be able to break because it is not written on tablets. It is not written on scrolls. It is written within them. It cannot be broken. When World War II was on the verge of ending, The pastor of this church, Warren Grafton, wrote a letter to the congregation. He imagined the future. He said, I saw where the church must serve if she was worthy of living in an hour like this. It is as the voice of comfort and courage. And then Dr. Grafton went about being that comfort and that courage. He decided that with all these soldiers returning from the battlefront, young men, young women whose lives had been ripped apart, who had seen the most horrific things, he would form a new Sunday school class. And so they started what was called the Tri-C's class. And that group of young leaders became the powerhouse leaders of this congregation. They they served the church with 
all the different various leadership roles, they served boldly. And they were known not just for their leadership and their Bible study, they were known for their parties. Yeah, they had a thriving social life. In the early days, some criticized their parties as getting a little out of hand. I remember some of the class members telling me even about the pre-parties. Yeah, but the pastor defended them. The pastor knew that they needed to let off some steam after the horrors of war. He knew that they needed the church as a safe place where they could love and be loved. They were thirsting for a goodness they did not yet have. Dr. Grafton wrote that America was now realizing that the burden of, res- of tomorrow is in our laps, and the burden of responsibility is in the lap of the Church of Jesus Christ. That Trices class, they met together for 71 years. They became like family to one another. They became first-time parents together. They became grandparents together. They became great-grandparents together. They embodied the love of God for one another. They embodied the love of God for this congregation, for this city, and for the world. In order for God's love to be written on the hearts of the people, they would need to form a community. In fact, when Jeremiah writes, God writes upon the heart, Jeremiah is not talking about individual lives. In Hebrew, it reads, God writes upon their heart. One heart. It is upon the heart of the community. God isn't writing just on Mike or TJ or Dave or Tom or Carla. God is writing on the heart of Country Club Christian Church. God is writing on the heart of a collective group. Not mine, not yours, our heart. You know, when Krista Tippett spoke here a few weeks ago, she said there are three great questions of meaning that we need to be asking. What does it mean to be human? How do we want to live? And who will we be to each other? And this last question, who will we be to each other? She said, we could kind of ignore that question until 2020, but now we can't afford to ignore it. Who will we be to each other? We need to figure out if we will accompany one another and if we will allow ourselves to be accompanied on this journey through life, will we be a family? Will we be a community? Will we be a church? Will we gather together with other people so that God can write upon our heart? This week, the Wall Street Journal reported the death of Roger Angel. They said that Roger Angel was one of the best baseball writers ever to write. They called him the diamond of baseball journalism. When he died, he was 101 years old. And he once wrote that getting old is the second biggest surprise of my life. But the first, he said by a mile, is our unceasing need for deep attachment and intimate love. I am more and more convinced of this unceasing need that we have for deep attachment and intimate love 
And where else is this going to unfold in our society if not the church? Here, the miracle of love and attachment with other people, those who agree with us and those who don't agree with us, those who are like us and those who are not like us, here, the miracle of that deep attachment and intimate love takes place. And it is when we are together that God writes upon our heart. The prophet Jeremiah claims that the hope of the future is that God will make a covenant with us that cannot be broken, that God will remake us. We, we know, right? I mean, we know that some trees, like the aspen trees, and some flowers, like the Indian paintbrush, are not individual organisms, but are connected by an underground system of roots that make them one living organism. And the same is true for us as human beings. We do not thrive alone, but when we trust that root system called the Holy Spirit that connects us one to another, the heart of God breathes new life into our collective heart. And so community is not an add-on. It's not an option. It is essential. The way we thirst for the goodness that we do not have, it is by joining together with one another. In relationship, we accompany each other and we allow ourselves to be accompanied. That's what it means to walk into this room. I love that story that Anne Lamont tells in one of her books about the time that she was traveling with her toddler son, Sam. I think he was about four years old at the time, and he did what kids sometimes do. He locked himself into the hotel bathroom and she couldn't figure out how to get him out. And she realized that he was getting frustrated and she was starting to panic. And she would tell him to get up on his tippy toes and try to reach the lock, but either he couldn't reach it or he couldn't figure out how to do it. And so she started panicking and she called down to the front desk and she said, please send up maintenance as fast as you can. But it seemed like it was taking forever and he was starting to cry. And so she said, Sam, I'm sliding my little finger underneath the door and just reach out and grab onto my finger and just hold my hand until help comes. And I think that's what you and I are called to do, to hold on to each other so that God can write the law of love upon us.